Uh, if you missed last week or your first time visitor this week, let me catch you up quickly on where we're at here at West Hills. We kicked off a new 12-week sermon series last week entitled Tough Text, in which we are tackling the most difficult passages in the Bible for these three months. And so I prefaced last week's message by giving you three reasons we're taking on this series and then four factors that make a text tough. So let me quickly run through those. The reasons we're spending time on this series while other churches sometimes ignore these difficult passages of the Bible. Number one, we believe at West Hills that 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for reproof, uh, for correcting, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture, not just the easy parts. And so if it's really God's word, then we're going to trust that it's in here for a reason and that our neglecting any part of Scripture will be to our detriment and will leave us incomplete. You won't be a complete Christian until you've got every part of God's word down into every part of your being. And so we want to pray that that's what God would do through this series. Reason number two, non-Christian, we're doing this series for you as well. I shared last week, I walked away from the faith years ago because I didn't feel like I was getting real answers to my real questions of faith. And so we don't want to be one of those churches that ignores those. The church of all places should be a safe place to bring your honest doubts and struggles. I've got them too. Let's work through them together. And then thirdly, we're doing this series because we want to better equip you to reach unbelievers with the answers. Take the gospel outside these four walls. Yes, invite them in. Continue to do that. Katie Troll won the award this week for best share on Facebook. Last week, Abby Keen won it. And next week could be you. I could be giving you a shout out from the pulpit. And so um, if you want your name dropped, then Uh, And even if you don't, just share it, blast it out, and invite people to come and join us for this series, but at the same time, recognize that some of your non-Christian friends are never going to be caught dead in a church. And so if they're going to hear the Bible, the gospel, it's going to have to be you taking it outside the walls to them. And so we want to empower you to do that. And lastly, let me quickly run through four factors that make a text tough. Number one, it might seem irrelevant What's the point of this passage anyways? Number two, it seems inconsistent. How does this passage fit with what we know from science, from history, from elsewhere in the Bible? Number three, it might be personally problematic. This passage just upsets me. It doesn't sit right with me for one reason or another. Uh, Number four, it might be theologically problematic. If this is true, what does it say about God? And can I even bring myself to worship that kind of God? These are real tough questions. And last week, we focused in on category number one there, the seemingly irrelevant. And we read uh, and, and, and deeply considered some of the obscure genealogies, obsolete construction details, other boring lists that we find all throughout the Bible and answer the question, why would God spend so much time and so many pages on this stuff? And I gave you seven reasons. And this morning, we're going to shift to focus in on category two, the allegedly inconsistent. And we're going to answer the question, is the Bible full of contradictions? And so let me just start by giving you the simple brass tacks answer right up front. It's probably the one you 
come to expect from a Bible-loving pastor and a Bible-loving church? No. No, the Bible is not full of contradictions. In fact, it contains no inconsistencies as the Word of God. All Scripture really is God-breathed, and God doesn't make mistakes. Proverbs 35 says, Every word of God proves true. Psalm 119, verse 160 says, The sum of your word is truth. Now, if we do have any skeptics with us this morning, uh, first of all, again, especially glad and excited to have you with us this morning, but before you charge me with the logical fallacy of circular reasoning, the Bible is true because it says it's true, let me readily admit that I am biased, okay? That the Bible is a priori my source of authority ultimately, in all matters of faith and practice. And so, of course, I look to it as evidence, as proof for everything. I come to the text wanting it to be true, believing it to be true, and therefore always giving Scripture the benefit of the doubt. And what I would simply invite and challenge you to do this morning is to be so honest with yourself is to admit that you are at least equally biased, that you also come to the text with your own presuppositions and your own desires. To paraphrase atheist Thomas Nagel, it isn't just that you don't believe in the Bible. You don't want the Bible to be true. You don't want the Bible to be the Word of God. You approach the Bible with your own faith. See, friends, we all have faith. Everyone has faith. It's just a matter of where your faith is, what you put it in. Yours might be in science, in human progress, in your own intellect. Mine happens to be in Scripture. But let's don't pretend that either one of us is coming to the Bible objectively as an impartial, impartial, dispassionate observer. Postmodernism was right about at least that much. We all bring our subjective biases to the table. And so I'll lead with mine, but I'll just tell you what I want to do in this sermon, more so than even attempting to harmonize Uh, all of the alleged inconsistencies of the Bible. Because listen, I've got a list here. You can check it after the service if you want. 39 pages worth, 140 some on alleged contradictions. And I've only got 35 minutes. You got to get out for lunch. Uh, And so I will briefly touch on, at the end, some categorical ways of resolving some of these textual tensions in our last five to 10 minutes. But I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning together showing you why I don't think it ultimately matters. I don't think ultimately it matters. I could stand up here and I could harmonize all 39 pages worth of contradictions contradictions for you, and rest assured, it can be done. There are biblical answers to all of your best questions of Scripture. We've, we've got a student in our youth group, Clara Wells, who did it. She did it. When I taught the youth group through apologetics two years ago, I showed them this list, and then just as a throwaway, because I knew none of them would put in the time and the work to do it, I just said, I'll give you 100 bucks if anybody takes this list and answers all 143 contradictions. And Claire did it. She came back the next week with an even longer list of explanations for every single one. So it can be done. An intelligent freshman in high school can go toe-to-toe with the most avowed atheist on this stuff. But the debate over the Bible 
is not and has never really been about who's smarter or who has the most evidence. It's really about what you want to believe. What do you want to believe? You're going to find the evidence that you're looking for. And so would you turn with me to John chapter 10, where we find an exchange between Jesus and a group of his first century skeptics. And I want to use this as an analogy. I want to use this exchange between Jesus and his skeptics to help us understand what is really going on at the heart of the matter here and try and extract some principles for how we as Christians ought to think through and respond. Uh, Because I think that, that their first century skepticism towards the incarnate word of God, Jesus, has a lot to teach us about our own 21st century skepticism towards the spoken, written word of God, the Bible. And so would you stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's word from John chapter 10, verses 22 through 39. I'll read it for us from the English uh, Standard Version translation. It'll be on the screen in front of you as well if you don't have a Bible. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. And it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple on the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself to be God. And Jesus answered them, it is, not, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, and do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe in me, believe in the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your incarnate, revealed word Jesus, and we thank you for your spoken, written word, the Bible to which he testified and which testifies to him. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in this world in the dark, that you have given us a light unto our feet, a lamp unto our path. God, we pray that this morning you might, through the power of your illuminating Holy Spirit, just fade up that dimmer a little bit more for someone. Give us a little bit more light. Give us a little bit more confidence and trust in your word. 
Father, help us now to submit ourselves under the authority of your word. God, if there's anyone here who is questioning, wrestling, doubting, thank you. Thank you that they're here. God, I pray that this this message would not be one of uh, me trying to guilt or manipulate or shame or anything other than just you challenging and revealing the truth of your word, the trustworthiness of your word, your goodness. God, I pray that you might do what only you can do this morning, unstop deaf ears, open blind eyes, that we might see you more clearly. For our edification and for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. And so eight takeaways I want to give you that I glean from this passage about the nature of skepticism and our appropriate Christ-like response to it. Number one, we need to understand that most skeptics have already answered their questions. Uh, Look at verses 24 and 25 with me. They ask Jesus, tell us already, are you the Messiah? And Jesus' response is, I did tell you already, and you wouldn't listen. See, we like to think of ourselves, I think, as open-minded, reason-driven people. Just show me the evidence, and I'll follow it wherever it leads. But even secular research in the field of cognitive behavioral psychology refutes that. Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for this just a few years back. His work in, in this field, his analogy was the elephant and the rider. The rational part of your brain, the, your prefrontal cortex, that you like to think drives your decision making is like a tiny rider sitting on top and trying to steer this giant elephant that is your amygdala, your unthinking autopilot, emotional, knee-jerk response system. This is why you freak out when someone cuts you off in traffic. They can't hear you screaming at them in their car, but you do it anyways, right? This is why uh, I still go to Taco Bell. I'm quite aware of the health consequences. I just don't care, because I love Taco Bell. I love the taste, and it's why some of you will see your New Year's resolutions to read the Bible this year fall by the wayside, because you know you ought to be devoted to studying the Bible, but you don't love it. You don't love it yet. If you love the Word of God, it wouldn't have to be a spiritual discipline for you. I don't have to discipline myself to be physically intimate with my wife. Some of y'all with three or four kids are like, oh yes, I remember those days when we didn't have to schedule physical intimacy. I just love my wife, and I love doing that. And so my brain and my body follow my heart. That's why Jesus didn't die to give us new heads, better theology. He died to give us new hearts, to reorient our affections. And in the case of both the first and the 21st century skeptic, They could be shown all the rationalizations of Scripture that they wanted, and some of them would still be unconvinced because most have already answered their own questions about the Bible's veracity in their minds before they even sit down to discuss it. They don't want the Bible to be true. Number two is the proof is in the pudding. Verses 25 and 32, 37, 38, Jesus says, the works that I do bear witness about me. And the same holds true for the Bible as well. Say what you want 
about its contents, but you cannot argue with the Bible's track record. Christianity has been the greatest force for good in the history of the world. I mean, I guess you can argue with it. Nowadays, you have militant atheists like Sam Harris who essentially try and rewrite history to prove how awful religion is and conspicuously ignore the fact that Christianity gave birth to virtually every societal good that uh, we've known for the last 2,000 years. Hospitals, schools, the public welfare system, food banks, homeless shelters. The church invented all this stuff long before politicians co-opted it for their own political gain and job security. But again, you're going to see what you want in the evidence. And so no amount of evidence is ever going to convince Bill Maher or your atheist brother-in-law, or your apatheist co-worker, because ultimately this is a matter of the heart. And the only solution for a matter of the heart is a new heart. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, of God himself reaching in and touching and softening your heart. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, and so what your friends, your lost loved ones, your unbelieving co-workers, neighbors need more than your arguments is your prayers. They need our prayers, brothers and sisters. I'm not, I'm not saying we don't engage them. Uh, we absolutely should witness, should, should answer these questions because there are good answers, but we do so prayerfully, knowing that this person ultimately needs more than, than you know, intellectual knowledge that we can give them. They need a new heart, and only God can do that. They're blind. They need the Holy Spirit to lift the veil, to cause the scales to fall off their eyes. Because point number three is believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. Jesus says in verse 26, you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. You haven't yet been given new eyes, eyes of faith to see with good vision. Again, so often we think of this upside down. We think, if I see, then I'll believe. God, if you really want me to believe, then show me. Prove yourself to me. Give me a sign. But like Jesus warned the Pharisees in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus from Luke chapter 16, when the rich man pleads with Abraham from Hades, at least Abraham sent Lazarus back to earth to warn my family to repent. And what does Abraham say? He says, they've already got Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe in the Old Testament, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Talk about foreshadowing. These blind, hypocritical, first century Jewish leaders had traded God's inspired Old Testament word for their own man-made traditions. And soon, we hear in Matthew chapter 28, they will knowingly go so far as to stage the world's worst cover-up of all time and deny Jesus's indisputable historical resurrection. Even, even doubting Thomas, even Jesus's own followers had to be rebuked. Jesus tells Thomas, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. I sometimes tell the story of a skeptical agnostic student I had in my days of doing youth ministry at Culver, who I simply encouraged him, pray, 
ask God to reveal himself to you. And he came back to youth group the next week and told me that he'd woken up in the middle of the night that week and seen this strange, inhuman, shadowy, like specter sitting on top of his dresser in the middle of the night. And he convinced himself he must have been dreaming. He went back to sleep. In the morning, his roommate asked him if he had seen the ghost on top of the dresser in the middle of the night. I said, Grant, okay, at least now you believe in the supernatural. Like, I don't know, maybe God didn't reveal himself. Maybe it was a demon. I don't know. But you, you, you believe that there's this other spiritual plane of existence, right? And he thought about it and he said, well, maybe it was just one of the guys on my hall playing a prank on me. And their bedroom doors, by the way, locked from the inside. So, friends, until your eyes are opened, you will always find another explanation. You will always rationalize yourself into what you want to believe. But on the flip side, number four, is that God keeps those who he calls. Verses 28 and 29 here is the strongest articulation anywhere in the Bible of the glorious promise that true believers in Jesus will not and cannot lose their salvation. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So let me just say this to those of y'all here this morning who are believers, who have given your trust, your heart, your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. God will sustain your faith even through your doubts. God is big enough to handle your doubts and your honest questions. See, it's not really a matter of whether you doubt. It's a matter of how you doubt, when you doubt, because we all doubt. So how do you doubt when you doubt? If Joe, if Joe Plummer, the professional, tells me it took him three hours to fix my leaky running toilet, so here's your bill. I've got doubts, three hours, but if I tell my wife, Polly, babe, it took me three hours, five YouTube videos, four trips to Home Depot, uh, I'm sorry I missed the family outing, she's still going to be frustrated at the cost but she's not going to question me. She trusts me. She gives me the benefit of the doubt. And so I ask you this morning, Christian, when you doubt, do you give the Lord the benefit of that doubt? I've used this analogy before. Not everyone with a knife is a bad guy. And so when God is performing spiritual surgery on you, do you assume that he is the good physician removing a spiritual cancer from inside you, or do you automatically assume he's the thug from the back alley? Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me. They trust me. Even when we run out of our own faith, we trust in God's promise that when we are faithless, he remains faithful. 2 Timothy 2, that those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those who he justified, he also glorified. Romans 8, 30, that he will keep us, he will sustain us, even through our doubts. That's a beautiful promise for those of you who have the security of your faith in Jesus this morning. 
and he's worth that faith because number five, he is God's word and the Bible is also God's spoken word. We hear this in verses 30 and 35. Jesus claims here to be God's incarnate word. I and the Father are one, he says. Clear claim to his divinity. That's why the Jews pick up stones to kill him. In a not dissimilar way, in verse 35, Jesus affirms Scripture as God's spoken, written word. The Scriptures cannot be broken, he says. They are infallible, unfailing. They are inerrant. They do not err. Scripture cannot contradict itself or science or history or archaeology or anything else because all truth is God's truth and God is not a liar. Number six, this is personal. Let's just admit that this is personal. Verse 31, we hear they picked up stones to stone them. You don't just stone someone over a disagreement. Right? The Pharisees weren't even allowed by Rome to practice capital punishment by this time in history. And so you know if they're like breaking the law at their own expense, they're ticked off. This is not just some theological difference of opinion. They hate Jesus. They hate him. This is personal. And for the 21st century skeptic, I'm not going to assume anything about your heart and that you hate God or something like that. It's personal. It's always personal. There's always a story behind the story, right? I think of the, the film God's Not Dead. It kind of smacks you over the head with this. The Christian film industry is still figuring out the, the nuances of, uh, and the role of subtlety in filmmaking. We'll get there. Um, but, you know, that, that scene at the end when the atheist professor finally cracks and confesses that he hates God because God uh, let his mom die at an early age. The point stands, nevertheless, every skeptic has a reason to disbelieve, a real reason. Not just the excuse that you're given, not just the intellectual excuse. My liberal divinity school education just gave me an intellectual excuse to disbelieve in the Bible that I already didn't want to believe in. Because deep down, I knew that believing in it would require me to make some really difficult personal life changes that, frankly, I didn't want to make. Like admitting that God is God and I'm not. That's an inconvenient truth. I rather liked being God, and I think that most people that reject him do it because they rather like being their own Lord and Savior. The sad reality is we all make lousy lords and saviors. He is a good one. You're not. I say that in love this morning, friend. And I think the same is true to a certain extent for every non-believer. It's always personal. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, we keep that in mind when we're witnessing, when we're having these conversations. Again, we don't ignore their real questions, but we keep in mind that the presenting issue is rarely the real issue. There's always a deeper issue at the heart of the matter. And number seven, we remember that we are all fallible humans here, all right, who make mistakes when it comes to things like interpreting the Bible. In verse 34, Jesus asked these self-proclaimed Old Testament experts sarcastically. He says, is it not written in your law? Elsewhere, Jesus lays it on even thicker. He says, have you not read? Can't you read? 
Like, I'm the uneducated Galilean carpenter here. Y'all are the religious experts, but I'm having to explain the Bible to you. Friends, when you come to something in the Bible that seems like a contradiction that you can't reconcile in your own mind, perhaps rather than jumping to the conclusion, oh, there must be a problem with the Bible, perhaps we lead with a little bit more humility, recognizing instead that the problem could be with me, my own understanding, my own finite, fallible, human, limited mind, capacity for comprehension. That would serve us well. And finally, number eight, let us not forget that God wins. Verse 39, though they sought to arrest Jesus, it wasn't yet his time, and so he escaped. But when it comes to the Bible, Isaiah 40, verse 8, assures us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord endures forever. The Bible's day will never come. It has stood the test of time for 2,000 years now, and I can promise you that neither you nor I nor the smartest skeptic out there has ever or will ever find any new contradiction that somehow the rest of us have have managed to overlook for the last 2,000 years and threatens to bring down the entire Christian faith crumbling all around us, it's not going to happen. Okay, there there are answers. There are justifications for all of this stuff, for every troubling text, because God always wins. And so I want to spend our last five to 10 minutes here checking out just a few of these alleged contradictions and showing you what I've been assuming all throughout, that there really are answers for all of this. As I said, rather than attempt to answer all 143 contradictions or however many your list might be, I will, uh, by the way, post these. I'm going to post the electronic version to our Facebook group uh, this week. I'm not going to give you $100 this time. Um, You will certainly win my respect If you uh, take the time to work through all of these, more importantly, you will be a more prepared apologist as you uh, confront these conversations in your day-to-day walk with non-believers. But I do want to at least give you eight quick strategies as we leave for harmonizing and making sense of, of an apparent contradiction when you come across it in the Bible, okay? And give you an example or two of each of how this works. So number one, we first consider the narrative context. We hear in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And in Romans 14, verse 5, Paul says, one person esteems one day, the Sabbath is better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. So which one is it, Bible? Is, is the Sabbath special or is it not? Exodus 21, 24 says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus famously says in Matthew 5, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, turn the other cheek. Which one is it? Well, in the Old Testament, it was one. Under the New Covenant, it's the other. God doesn't change, but we do, and so his parenting changes to accommodate for our growth and development as a human species. I could stay the same loving father towards my four-year-old daughter and spank her when she's two or three years old and then ground her when she's 16 years old because you accommodate your parenting. 
It's old covenant, new covenant. This is also, by the way, the reason we experience, we don't experience uh, anymore so many of the healings and miracles nowadays that we saw all over the place in the Bible. We shouldn't expect to because we're living in a different chapter of God's redemptive story. We have to consider the narrative context. And number two, we consider the literary context. This saves us from getting, you know, all up in a tizzy over passages like Psalm 93, verse 1. The world is established. It shall never be moved. Wait a minute. Does the Bible refute the heliocentric model of the solar system? Well, the Psalms are poetry. And so I guess to the extent that you would call John Mayer a liar for singing your body as a wonderland, wait a minute, my body's not a theme park. I mean, that's, that's not really the purpose of poetry, is it? Which is a good segue to number three, consider the purpose. What was the purpose of this being written? We'll we'll start studying the book of Genesis in April together, but I'm just going to put my cards on the table right now and say I don't think it was God's purpose in Genesis chapters one or two to offer us a scientific textbook. I think he wanted to give us something so much more than that. Now, I'm not saying we ought to buy into evolution, hook, line, and sinker. I'm just saying let's at least read the Bible on its own terms. Let's read it for what it was intended to be. And related, number four, we have to consider the author. Who is writing? Who is speaking here? I've heard people rip verses out of context from the book of Job, for instance, to prove that if you're suffering, you must have done something to upset God, forgetting that those verses are found on the lips of Job's three friends who badly failed biblical theology in seminary. And they were explicitly reproved by God in the later chapters of Job for it. If, if only bad people suffered, what does that say about Jesus, right? So that's not, that's not just because it, the text says who, was, who, who that was innocent ever perished. We don't just rip that and say, well, only bad people suffer, right? Consider the author, the speaker. Uh, number five, consider the linguistic context, What does this word or this phrase actually mean? Sometimes you have to go back to the original uh, Hebrew or Greek. That's why it's helpful to to know the biblical languages. Like when Mark says, uh, Jesus in Mark chapter 6, Jesus could do no mighty work there except that he healed a few people. Well, obviously, the fact that he healed anyone is evidence that he hasn't just forfeited his divine power. This is an idiom. It's a, it's a turn of phrase. It's like if I said, oh, I just can't ever preach a good sermon with you people. The point isn't, I mean, I'm, I'm giving you gold in these sermons. The problem's with y'all. Y'all just don't appreciate it, right? I mean, that, that's what I would mean hypothetically by saying that. <laughs> Jesus can do no right in their eyes, right? And this might also apply to some of those controversial verses on whether or not the rock badger chews its cud in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 5. We don't even really know what that Hebrew word, uh, rock badger, which animal it refers to. So again, let's just cool the jets a little bit. Um, number six, consider the application. How is this text, what, what is the application here? How, how ought this text be applied? We look at an example, Proverbs 26, verse 4, 26, verse 5, put together, they directly contradict one another, and they're placed directly side by side for that very purpose, for emphasis, to emphasize the fact that there's just no winning when it comes to fools, right? You answer a fool not according to his folly, lest you be 
like him yourself or answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. There's no winning with fools. It's a lose-lose. Or, you know, the more optimistic interpretation and invalid, equally valid interpretation here might be that sometimes you have to really answer a fool. That's the biblical, uh, biblical injunction. But other times, don't even bother. Don't waste your words. And it's the truly wise, discerning person who has to know the difference. And it's all about the context. The application, which one you apply, depends on your specific circumstances. It takes discernment on, on the part of the believer. How can the Bible both say in the Psalms, refrain from anger, and then Paul says, be angry but don't sin? Which is it, the Bible? I mean, are we supposed to be angry or not be angry? Well, Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time for everything. There's a time for peace and a time for war. It's a time to be angry, a time to not be angry, right? The circumstances dictate the application of the text. It's not a contradiction. Number seven, consider the perspective. Even though the, the human authors were inspired by God to pen the words that we find in Scripture. That they didn't stop being human while they were writing. And that's a beautiful thing. That's a good thing for you and me, that God would condescend to use even broken, fallible people like, like you and I to do things as important as, as, as write his Scripture. And so Matthew remembers there being one angel at Jesus' empty tomb. John remembers Mary Magdalene saying there were two angels. If I walk away from that passage thinking the real headline here is how many angels there are, like, wait a minute, let's get the facts straight here, I think I've probably missed the point, right? There's a dead body walking around somewhere. Oh, there he is. It's Jesus. He's back from the dead. That's the story. That's the headline that all four gospel writers are pointing to. So, so we don't nitpick over these things. It's a matter of perspective. You know, if Matthew's standing here and he can only see one of the angels and John's standing here and he sees them both, you know, that's, that's, not, that's not the point. And finally, friends, we've got to consider God's power. Consider God's power. You, know, you think of a talking snake, a man living to 969 years old, fitting millions of species of animal on a single wooden boat. That's all just in the first six chapters, right? And the skeptic is probably not going to be satisfied by this final suggestion to consider God's power. But at the end of the day, for us as believers, there's just no getting around the fact that this is a pretty supernatural book because we worship a pretty supernatural God, and it's his autobiography. And so if you can bring yourself to believe that there is a God powerful enough to create everything you see and everything you can't even see in the first place, then is it really that difficult to believe that he could do any of the rest of the stuff that we find in Scripture? I mean, if, if, you, if you can believe in God powerful in the first place, then is it that much more of a jump to believe in a talking snake? You believe in six literal days of creation or not. That's fine. That's between you and the Lord. But don't disbelieve because you question whether or not God was capable of doing it. God is more than capable of doing it. In six days like that, I mean, he can do anything. I think he can handle a few million creatures on a boat. He's big enough. And so, friends, I'll leave you with this. I just gave you eight ways of harmonizing apparent inconsistencies. There's probably way more than that. Those are just the first eight, and I'm out of time. But you, you can probably think up your own. 
Take the list. Do it yourself this week. It'd be a really good exercise for you. I've given you eight more reasons why I think ultimately, though, it doesn't matter why you could hand this packet to the unbelievers in your life. And it's not going to do a lot for them because at the end of the day, no one will enter or be denied the kingdom of heaven on intellectual grounds. It's a matter of the heart. And so for that reason, let me just come back, circle back again, and leave you with one reason One reason why you should want to believe, why you should want, like I do, to have faith, to approach it, giving it the benefit of the doubt, believing. And it's because God is good and He's trustworthy and He will not disappoint you. Everything else in your life will. God will not, His Word will not. And He proved it by sending His only Son, Jesus go so far as to die in your place, in my place, that if you will but turn from your sin, your sin of unbelief, and trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, you will be saved. We all have faith. The question I ask you this morning is, where is your faith? Let's pray.